When people usually discuss anarchism, we usually get the definition of a belief in the abolition of all government and the organization of society on a voluntary, cooperative basis without recourse to force or compulsion. But the definition itself doesn't show the true complexity of anarchism as a school of thought. We see that anarchism has its roots in ancient Greek and Chinese philosophy. For example, when looking at ancient Greece, we see that the first known political usage, the word anarchy, appears in the play Seven Against Thebes by Anschlutz, and sorry for the, the atrocious pronunciation, a lot of these are in Greek names, dated at 467 BC. The Seven Against Thebes in Greek mythology is the seven champions who were killed fighting against Thebes after the fall of Opetus, the king of Thebes. But I'm going to be taking a bigger look at the two major Greek schools of thought, which is Synthesism and Stoicism. Synthesism is a school of thought from the Socratic period of ancient Greece, which holds that the purpose of life is to live a life of virtue in agreement with nature. The Sinks believe that the world belongs equally to everyone, and that suffering is caused by false judgments of what is valuable and by the worthless customs and conventions which surround society. They also saw their job as acting as the watchdog of humanity and to evangelize and hound people about the error of their ways. They were particularly critical of any show of greed, which they viewed as a major cause of suffering. Stoicism is a school of thought which teaches that virtue, the highest good, is based on knowledge. The wise live in harmony with the divine reason that governs nature and are indifferent to the alteration of fortune and to pleasure and pain. The Stoics believe that perception is the basis of true knowledge. In logic, their comprehensive presentation of the topic is derived from perception, yielding not only the judgment that knowledge is possible, but also that certainty is possible on the analogy of incorrelability of perceptual experience. Now when looking at the prominent members of these two schools of thought, such as the Sinks Diogenes of Sinopo and Crates of Thebes, both supposed to have advocated for anarchistic forms of society, which we can see with their most significant contribution, which was the radical approach of law and nature. Sinks dismissed law, which meant the authorities, hierarchies, establishments, and the moral code of the polis. Also looking at the work of Zeno of Citium, the founder of Stoicism, who was influenced by the Sinks, described his vision of an egalitarian utopian society around 300 BC. Zeno's Republic advocates a anarchic form of society in which there is no need for state structures. He argued that although the necessary instinct of self-preservation leads humans to egotism, nature has supplied a corrective to it by providing man with another instinct, namely sociability. Like many modern anarchists, he believed that if people follow their instincts, they will have no need for law, courts, or police, no temples, and no public worship, and use no money. Now this concludes the Greek connection, and now for another ancient example of anarchism would be Taoism, which is also called Taoism, which is an indigenous philosophical tradition of Chinese origin which emphasizes living in harmony with the Tao. The Tao is a fundamental idea in most Chinese philosophical schools, but in Taoism, however, it denotes the principle that the source, pattern, and substance of all that exists. But when exploring the major texts within this philosophical tradition, which is Tao Te Ching, which translates the Book of the Manifestation of the Way, and sorry for the horrible mispronunciation, or the Book of the Virtue of the Way, the text was written as a guide for rulers. The text was written by Lao Zhu, who was born in 604 BC, which at this time of China was a feudal society, but was in the midst of a long project to develop and expand its laws and government. It was Confucius who was instrumental in that expansion, 
His philosophy emphasized the need for hierarchical relations as crucial for not only politics and government, but for society as a whole. Confucius thought that it was vital to a well-functioning society that in a strict hierarchy was imposed that within that structure everyone knew their place and made sure they did not wander from it. But the Taoists was oppo were opposed to Confucius. They believed that everything functions better when it is left alone and not interfered with. And they sought to live in a free and open harmony, not merely with nature, but with the natural flow of existence itself. Confucius believed in discipline, order, and obedience. The Taoists, on the other hand, believed in the incredible power of allowing. Confucius related to the nature as its conqueror, while the Taoists' relationship to nature was primarily one of openness. Now when looking at the central text of Taoism, which I stated before was Tao Te Ching, one verse sticks out to me, which is verse 57, which states, if you want to be a great leader, you must learn to follow the Tao. Stop trying to control. Let go of the fixed plans and concepts and the world will govern itself. The more prohibitions you have, the less virtuous people will be. The more weapons you have, the less secure people will be. The more subsidies you have, the less self-reliant people will be. Therefore, the master says, I let go of the law and the people become honest. I let go of economics and people become prosperous. I let go of religion and people become serene. I let go of all desire for the common good and the good becomes common as grass. So this can be compared to Taoist political philosophy, which tends to be more anarchic as Confucianism, as we said before. But we have to analyze the text from a view of laissez-faire, small government, and non-intervention as the political ideals that drive Taoist political philosophy, which is just keeping with the Tao. And some of the passages that show what I stated just now is, if you don't trust the people, you make them untrustworthy. The master doesn't talk, he acts when his, his work is done. The people say amazing, we did it all by ourselves. Whoever relies on the Tao and governing men doesn't try to force issues or defeat enemies by force of arms. For every force, there is a counterforce. Violence, even well-intentioned, always rebounds upon oneself. And another verse which shows this is, weapons are the tools of fear. A decent man will avoid them, except in the direst necessity, and if compelled, will use them only with the utmost restraint. Peace is his highest value. If the peace has been shattered, how can he be content? His enemies are not demons but human beings like himself. He doesn't wish them personal harm, nor does he rejoice in victory. How could he rejoice in victory and delight in the slaughter of men? He enters a battle gravely, with sorrow and with great compassion, as if he were attending a funeral. And that concludes comparing Taoism into anarchism and finding the anarchic features of Taoist belief. And now getting down to the foundations of modern anarchist thought, we see Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, a very well-known anarchist who defined anarchism as the absence of a master, of a sovereign, and developed the idea of mutualism, which forms an important link between individualist and collectivist anarchism. Proudhon's work included what is property, system of economic contradictions, or the philosophy of poverty, general idea of the revolution in the 19th century, and justice in the revolution and the church. He was also opposed to collectivism on the grounds that it subordinated individual freedom and independence. For this reason, he objected to communism and the trade unions. And another thing that we have to grasp the idea on is that Proudhon also had communist contentions, as I just stated right now, and he also had capitalist contentions, which he also famously stated, property is that. Proudhon was opposed to private property as a form of capitalist accumulation since it enables property owners to exploit 
others through profit, rent, and interest. Thus, for him, possession of private property was illegitimate when it gives one person power over another. Rondon was an anti-capitalist. Rondon also considered it a natural right for a person to own a home and possess enough land or tools to be able to work. To him, an individual requires a minimum amount of property to maintain their independence, liberty, and livelihood. To avoid the dangers associated with private property and collectivism, Rondon proposed mutualism, a system that represents both the individualist and collectivist anarchist spectrum. Going into more of a deep analysis, we can go into anarchism in Spain. So we see that anarchism and syndicalism was most successful in Spain. For a long period of time, the anarchist movement in the country remained the most numerous and the most powerful in the world. The first known Spanish anarchist, Ramon de la Sarga, who was considered the disciple of Brundon and founded the world's first anarchist journal, which is El Provinier, in La Coruna in 1845, which was quickly suppressed. Mutualist ideas were later publicized by Franco B. E. Margal, a Federalist leader and the translator of many of Brundon's books. During the Spanish Revolution of 1873, B. E. Margal attempted to establish a decentralized or cantonalist political system on Proudhonian lines. In the end, however, the influence of Bancun was stronger. In 1868, his Italian disciple Giuseppe Fanelli visited Barcelona and Madrid where he established branches of the international. By 1870, they had 40,000 members, and in 1873, the movement numbered about 60,000, organized mainly in working men's associations. In 1874, the anarchist movement in Spain was forced underground, a phenomenon that reoccurred often in subsequent decades. Nevertheless, it flourished and anarchism became the most favored type of radicalism among two very different groups, the factory workers of Barcelona and the Catalan towns, and the impoverished peasants who toiled on the estates of absentee owners in Andalusia. But when we fast forward to the Spanish Civil War, we see the Confederación Nacional de Trabajo and the Federación Anarconquista Iberia, which remained clandestine organizations under the dictatorship of Miguel Primo de Rivera, which at this time came into the open with the abdication of King Alfonso the 13th in 1931 their anti-political philosophy led them to reject the republic as much as they rejected the monarchy it had replaced and between 1931 and the military rebellion led by Francisco Franco in 1936 there were several unsuccessful anarchist risings in 1936 the anarchists who over the decades had become expert urban guerrillas were mainly responsible for the defeat of the rebe rebel generals in both Barcelona and Valencia, as well as the country areas of Catalonia and Argonne, and for many early months of the Civil War, they were in virtual control of eastern Spain, where they regarded the crisis as the opportunity to carry through the social revolution of which they had long dreamed. Factories and railways in Catalonia were taken over by workers' committees, and in hundreds of villages in Catalonia, in Levante, and Andalusia. The peasants seized the land and established libertarian communes, as they say, like those described by Kropotnik in the conquest of bread. The internal use of money was abolished, the land was tilled in common, and village products were sold or exchanged on behalf of the community in general, with each family receiving an equitable share of food and other necessities. An idealistic Spartan favor characterized these communities, which often consisted of illiterate laborers, intoxicants such as tobacco and sometimes even coffee were renounced, and such enthusiasm took place of religion, as it has often done in Spain. And this concludes the anarchism documentary, and the next documentary will be on the utopia. And thank you guys for listening, and see you next time.